it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you've uh, been with us all week long. It's been a big week, exciting week. Last night I was able to go up uh, on stage in Albany, be able to talk about America from 1776, not 1619. Take your questions. Uh, and uh, got a chance to meet some of uh, New York State's finest to a very optimistic Lee Zeldin's going to be successful today. I come to you from the Amtrak train station in Albany, uh, WG. Uh, DJ, his uh, own Paul Vandenberg, was able to host us last night, was able to get the word out about the event, and then I'm able to sit here at the train station, look out at it, at this uh, great scenery, and give you a shot at what it's like being in the capital of New York State. Totally different than New York City, I might add. A lot nicer. Uh, with me right now is uh, one of the most successful men in American media. He is uh, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson has a daily show, so he's got to go to work almost every day at 8 o'clock. He's also got Tucker Carlson today. He's also got his documentary series, which he's going to be talking about shortly. And, Tucker, I was not able to watch your show live, but I watched the replay on Fox Nation. Brilliant approach to a story that everybody's doing. You talked about put the U.K. in perspective in history, uh, and you saw your great writing skills on display. Why was that your approach? When did you get that idea to approach this story, the death of the queen, this way? Well, because it's, you know, marking the end of something bigger than just one human life. It's the end of England. I mean, you know, we're the same age, about, and when we were kids, it was known as England. Remember that? It wasn't the UK or Great Britain or it was England. It was a country. It was a place with a people and a language and and a history and that's gone. It was destroyed by two world wars, both of which England, quote, won. But the empire was over and then the country was over. The country lost self-confidence and then decided to degrade itself, which it has been doing ever since, and lost its manufacturing base, became a banking center and essentially a refugee camp for the rest of the world for its former colonies, et cetera, et cetera. And no one sort of ever pauses to, to notice. Like, this, this was a world power. This country can you know, was the largest empire in human history. It controlled the world. The, the English struck fear into the hearts of, you know, the entire globe. And now it's this kind of decayed museum. And that happened in one lifetime. Like, how did that happen? It was very fast. That's n- no empire's ever fallen quicker or more ignominiously. I mean, London right. wasn't, you know, sacked by the Germans, but... It was something even more kind of insidious and sad happened where the people who run the country just lost confidence in themselves and 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 became pathetic and self-hating. And I don't know. I just think someone should point that out because maybe there are lessons for us in that. Because, you know, I, I remember that uh, I remember that when that statue came down, they said, well, this guy, yeah, you know, he was a philanthropist, but he showed tinge of uh, 
uh, racist in his background, which was he's pretty much a person of his time. So let's take down a statue and throw it in the canal, much like we're doing here with Robert E. Lee. They, what they're trying to do with Thomas Jefferson, the University of Virginia. Go with out Abraham people's Lincoln. history with Abraham Lincoln, taking him off grammar Abraham schools. Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves. I mean, <laughs> what? I mean, and of course, England ended the transatlantic slave trade. They ended the ritual murder of widows in India. England was, you know, a, an empire and did bad things, but compared to what? Compared to any other empire in history, this was, you know, the most benign empire ever. But 10x, I mean, nothing compares to it, actually. And no one says that. And you have to ask, why do they not say that? Why are they intent on convincing us that the British Empire was evil? Um, and, and, of course, the answer is because they're all in on the Chinese Empire, right? So by by denying you knowledge of the past, they make it possible to sell you something even worse in the future. So that's interesting. So you believe China's uh, economic dominance is making these leaders subservient and even educators subservient to the Chinese doctrine. Rip apart our foundation. No longer feel as though you're moored to anything and be open to this new change. And that's of what we're course. seeing. Uh, and, and that's what we're seeing across the world. Well, that's that's I mean, look, history is the key to the future. Obviously, you have to know what happened. I mean, this is true in, in every sphere. I mean, the reason our planes don't crash is because the NTSB studies, you know, previous plane crashes. Right. We keep close track of what happened in order to chart our future. And so the second people begin to deny you knowledge of the past or lie about the past, distort the past. You have to ask, why are they doing that? And they're doing that in order to control your future. Look, we always – stronger countries dominate weak countries, period. That's just the fact of nature. Yep. That, that will never change. So you will always have empires. We always have had empires going back to the beginning of recorded history to the Assyrians in 1400 BC. We've always had empires globally, and we always will. And so the question is, what kind of empire do you want? What's the ideology? Is it a Christian empire, or is it a totalitarian empire? The, the British had a Christian empire. Again, with flaws, you know, I'm personally not even for empires, but I don't get to decide human nature, right? you know? And so the, the people who are telling us the British Empire was evil are the ones who are standing back and allowing China to colonize Africa on a much larger scale than the British ever attempted. I mean, the Chinese have more control over Africa right now than the British had in 1880. You know, the, the Chinese control Africa. No one ever says that. China's a colonial power. And it's an atheist, totalitarian colonial power that's a much harsher master than, than the British ever were. And, that, yeah. I, you know, no one says that because people instinctively suck up to the most powerful player. That, that's another feature, unattractive feature of human nature. But it's true. So, Tucker, they not only control Africa, they're making huge moves in Central and South America. And yes, that's why that's it's right. so uh, important. You went out and interviewed President Bolsonaro. Uh, he's basically the... Uh, the linchpin. If they could get him out, China will take over that country, too. Bolsonaro has pushed back against China. And, and Central and South America, we just basically gave up. We're not even looking at it. We don't even meet with them about stopping the legal immigrants from pouring in. So we have no interest for some reason in the Middle East, no interest in any of this. We have no interest in Central and South America. And we basically decide to go all electric and ga uh, go green. And the rare earth is all controlled by China. And the Congo is the place where... 
where they have even more rare earth than they do in China, and China is now in control of the Congo. So it's amazing. It seems as though either we're asleep at the switch or intentionally there. Here's the other thing I'd add. When China takes over a country and has their influence, they do this Belt and Road Program. The Belt and Road Program is a form of extortion. Hey, well, I'm going to go build an infrastructure you can't afford. Then when you can't make the payments, we will take it. We will take your ports. We'll take what we just built. And we'll have used that influence in your government. Solomon Islands, another example. Would they have stopped us from bringing our ships to port at the Solomon Islands because we allowed China to get in there and have their influence and take it over? We cannot sit on our hands as a country if we are serious in, in, in not giving up the world. When we won the Solomon Islands with the blood of American Marines and sailors from the Japanese in the Second World War through a series of incredibly brutal battles, so we had control of the Solomon Islands, I would say, with full justification. We, we, we earned it, and we handed it over to China. And, but by the way, this is how empires always behave when they collapse. This is how the British behaved when they collapsed. They handed Africa over to the worst people. I mean, yeah. the British government handed Rhodesia to a racist lunatic called Robert Mugabe. They sided with him over the people of Rhodesia, which became later Zimbabwe. So we're doing the same thing. Our empire is in retreat. It's in decline. And we're handing it, affirmatively handing it, knowingly handing it to the Chinese. And I I think it's um, it's a function of self-hatred. We no longer believe in ourselves. I mean, I did that script on the decline of Great Britain last night because I think it has lessons for the decline for us here in the I United know. States and in our decline. It's so sad. But, but it all starts with self-confidence. The Brits began to believe that they were they were had no moral justification. They started to hate themselves. And self-hatred is like a cancer, and it kills you in the end. Right. And we're allowing it to spread in this country. So we got that international relations thing we got to handle. I also think with the right leaders, we could bring it all the way back because we have the fundamentals still in place, the natural resources, the history, the innovation, the smarts. The educational system just needs to be tapped into the, pushed into the right direction. But I love the series that you have coming out because you just don't look at this whole push towards pronouns and uh, uh, this transgender thing and say, this is wrong, this is crazy, where this come from? You actually examine where it does come from. You point out different things in your series uh, that traumatic events happen in people's lives, and suddenly they realize they have an identity crisis, maybe a gender crisis. Here's a, the clip that you sent over to give people at home an idea of your series that's now out, your latest documentary that's now out on Fox Nation. Let's listen. There's a growing movement designed to confuse children about who they are on a fundamental level. This is the cult of transgenderism. The transgender phenomenon is not a small-scale operation. It's not led by a single man. Instead, it's led by the most influential power centers in the country, our own government, big corporations, the medical institutions, and, of course, the mass media. So, so you break it, you, you, you sum it up, and then you break it down. What did you discover in being that you were so hands-on on this series in particular? Well, a couple of things. I mean, if you take three steps back, what's going on here? If you wanted to destroy a country, you would convince its young people that biological sex wasn't real, and you would confuse them about their own, quote, gender identity. I mean, the gender binary, the difference between men and women is the basis of civilization. Everything from our personal lives to our government, to our military, everything is based on those differences. Biological differences are the core of everything. 
because biology is the core of everything, because reality is the core of everything. So if you wanted to throw a society into confusion and make it collapse, you would sow confusion around gender. And that's exactly what they're doing. And the, so that's the big picture. Uh, on the personal level, it's destroying kids. So we are allowing children to be sexually mutilated, castrated, subject to mastectomies, sterilized for life, and sort of standing back and not saying anything because the rest of us, particularly those of us in the media, are so completely cowed, so intimidated by the screaming and the violence right. of the activists who are pushing this that we don't want to say anything. And so we're like, well, no, it's gender-affirming. And even news organizations that should know better describe it as gender-affirming care. Castration is not gender-affirming. <laughs> it's an atrocity. And when it's committed against children, it's a crime. It's a moral crime, and it should be a legal crime, and the people who do it should be in prison. In my opinion, doctors who castrate kids should be in jail. And nobody says that for some reason, and the reason is because they're completely intimidated. And every HR department in the country is backing up these atrocities. And, and my point is, you know, this is insane. Let's wake up from the fever dream and see the damage that we're doing to children. You think the, uh, the people are going to watch this documentary and um, understand more what is happening before it's too late? Because that nine-year-old that walks into your kitchen and says, you know, I, I feel like I want to be the other gender. You have to arm the parents to understand what's happening and understand, too, someone briefed them already. We never talked about any of these things. I remember eighth grade health is the first time we talked about anything to do with sexuality. And that was on a test. It wasn't, we weren't winging it or riffing. How did they get into the schools? How did they get the teachers to convince to do this? Well, by um, outlawing any conversation about it. Anyone, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene brought this up and immediately her house was swatted, which is to say people tried to kill her. They called the police and said there was an armed gunman inside her house. So the SWAT team showed up at her house like three times with guns drawn. And the point of that is to get Marjorie Taylor Greene killed. So that's how serious the people pushing this are. That's how ruthless they are, radical and violent they are. And it just scares the crap out of everybody. And nobody, people think, well, I just don't want to, you know, I'm against this. This is crazy, but I don't want to deal with it. Maybe it'll pass. You know, maybe if I just shut up, it'll just go away. And parents are told, you know, whoa, were you a hater? Are you transphobic? <laughs> what? You know, and, right. and lost in all of the, I mean, and I'm just talking about, you know, the physical effects of this, but the societal effects are even more damaging. The entire country is being forced to lie and to say that you can change your sex by wishing it. So right. you can't. That's impossible. You can't change your race, your height, your air, hair color. This is nuts. And so all of us are now complicit in this lie. We're forced to tell it, and we're degraded. We've lost our moral power. Once they can force you to lie they can make you do anything. And so we're their slaves, like at that point. And this is really a big deal. I don't know why, you know, no one is saying it out loud. I guess because they're afraid. I, I know. And, and we're one of the few places that you could actually have real conversations. I, I know you're not in the New York, uh, New York or uh, D.C. necessarily, but you could have these. This, we're, we're still in somewhat of a we're in a normal business environment. Most other people are on pins and needles and don't want to come back to work because they're afraid of getting into some type of trouble, saying something that's going to get offended, getting that call from human resources. It's a, it's a very challenging time right now as we go back to the workplace. The few people that have the courage to go back uh, as we look at another 9-11. So, uh, Tucker, overall, you just completed another summer. 
you're about to maybe switch locations again are is your lifestyle doable between the documentaries the series the nightly show the specials you're doing is everything okay in tucker world yeah everything's great i mean everything's great i mean i have four dogs and um the same wife i've always had <laughs> who i still who i still like so yeah um yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on, though. I mean, as you know, and yeah. I always think, you know, at some point I'll get fired or killed or I'll just die like everyone else does in the end. And, you know, you should, <laughs> while you have a chance to work, you should, you yeah. should work. That makes it. I know you feel, I know you feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a window of opportunity now. So uh, let's do it. Let's yeah. have some fun. Uh, yeah, hey, I man. tell you, your show is a must watch every night, even uh, the times in which we don't agree, which means you're wrong. Uh, I just always find it fascinating, <laughs> and I can always tell you're writing in conversation. It's just great. Uh, Tuck, congratulations on everything. Everyone, download this documentary. Uh, it is really important to get a perspective on what's happening to your generation or the next generation, the current generation, whether you're grandparents or parents. Uh, you need your eyes open. Tucker, thanks so much. You're the best. Thank you, Brian. All right. Hey, listen, we're going to be back with your calls in just a moment. We're coming to you from Albany, New York, capital of new uh, of this great state. one 408 7669 Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, Let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
That was a little surprised to see a former Attorney General Bill Barr seem to fall for these selective leaks. He understood how that game was played when he was dealing with the Russia collusion hoax. He should understand that that is the same game that is being played now. The thing about these leaks, they will be eventually debunked, but they're, you know, they're putting forth false narratives and dangerous narratives, but they also kind of undermine themselves. They claim that this information was so mishandled down at Mar-a-Lago. Well, nobody knew anything about this. None of this was, a, was showing up in the pages of the Washington Post or New York Times until the FBI and DOJ got there. So that was Molly Hemingway weighing in on the Mar-a-Lago raid because we know that when the special master is named, they were outraged at the DOJ and FBI. So what they thought, let's outrage the American people and tell them part of a story and leak it to where? Where else? Washington Post or New York Times. This time they chose the Washington Post. And when it comes out and it says all this stuff was in Donald Trump's uh, uh, at Mar-a-Lago in uh, various areas and they say some of these folds were empty, we don't get the other side of the story. And Bill Barr feels as though to take this paperwork home was irresponsible. But I don't think that Bill Barr uh, is thinking it through, according to Molly, and I kind of agree with her, that we got the whole story just because the Washington Post has some selective leaks. I'm not sure it will be debunked, but we certainly don't have it all. Nigel Farage next. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. She's steered us through good times and bad. She's been through pandemics and terrorism attacks and natural disasters. Um, you know, the tragedies which have befallen the country or other countries. And whether she's been helping us to celebrate or whether she's been consoling us, she's been this constant rock of support. And she represents, Sean, in my opinion, the very best of British values. Stoicism, resilience, duty, humility, strength of character, never plays the victim, always looking forward, always putting the country before herself. And by the way, that's Pierce Morgan, obviously talking about the Queen's passing yesterday. It changed everything. You've seen it I think 23 of the 24 hours, even a show like Tucker Carlson uh, led with it, did the first half hour, had Nigel Farage on, and a few other guests, Laura Ingram, had Woody Johnson on, the ambassador of the U.K. So uh, it's a remarkable life. She's she's a person that can really mark time for 70 years. I get it. There's nothing I could tell you about her that will say, wow, I didn't know that. I understand it. But just to put it in perspective, what I think is important is what we have seen in modern times is Queen Elizabeth at the head, but Princess Diana became bigger than life. And then her dissatisfaction with the family and her negative review of the family had most people after her death siding with her. And they thought this could be the end of the royal family. She stood up. She spoke out. And little by little, things have changed. What was so amazing to me as an outsider is, is Harry seemed to be the cool guy. You know, okay, maybe he drank too much, he caroused too much, like maybe every teenager did, but Will got out of control as a kid. I remember uh, Will, the typical older brothers, him and and Will seem unbelievably tight. And he's the guy who serves in the military, insisted on not being treated differently. Who would ever think that he'd marry um, this third-rate actress who would convince him, it seems, to divorce himself from his family, still take the money, go to America, my favorite nation, Go to California, tell everybody we should go green, we should go clean, we should go renewables. At the same time, about to release a book, according to almost all reports, that is going to eviscerate the family and has already, through a series of interviews, labeled them as racist. 
Who would think that this woman or Harry would allow this woman to do that to him? And how ridiculous and horrible he must feel right now as he's basically left out. And it's his grandmother, the queen, the most famous person in the world, is laid to rest. And, okay, he was never going to be king. Ever. Who cares? He was an important person in that family, really respected by everyone, and now he's pretty much an outcast. Now think about this. You might not remember, Pierce Morgan was on this hit morning show, and he was the key personality to that morning show. And when they had a rift on Meghan Markle coming out and ridiculing the family and calling them racist, he stood up for the royal family. And that was a minority opinion. And because of that, he didn't want to stand for it. He actually walked off this job, risked his entire career, came back, lands with Fox Nation. has got a great series here. We love having him part of the fold. The guy is an absolute blast, interesting, uh, a deep thinker with great opinions. But he's also a good listener, great interviewer. But he put his career on the line and walking out and sticking up for the royal family. And, you know, we don't understand it necessarily. Some people like Martha McCallum live it, feel it. Ainsley's the same way. I don't. I appreciate who she is, but she wasn't making the decisions. Not like Winston Churchill ruled for 70 years, and you could talk about how he uh, made the decisions that brought you through a war. He didn't. It was about 15 years. Came back, uh, back and forth, back and forth. But Pierce Morgan weighed in. Last night, Woody Johnson, owner of the Jets, came out with Laura Ingram. Here's what he said he saw about the the Queen in action. Cut 20. The good news about her life and what she's done is it, it lays out a pretty good uh, path forward. You know, she changed with the times. She has a lot of young people around her, uh, so she gets different points of view. And I think Charles, King Charles now will, will do the same. I've met, I've met him, and the president's met him. We, we like him, and uh, he's very smart, and I think he'll do an excellent job. So there you go, Woody Johnson, a little bit understatement, but you had a chance to see behind uh, closed doors. And one thing that's pretty cool, they all agree they got to stay close to America. It doesn't matter if uh, the wheels seem to be falling off at times. We have uh, the wrong leader, I think this one. They met in England, not necessarily the queen or the prime minister. They thought Trump was the wrong leader. I thought it was almost hysterical. I'm watching MSNBC last night. Uh, as I'm flipping around, I want to see if everyone's doing solid queen. And they... They are doing the Queen, and they're showing the video with Donald Trump and how they seem to be getting along, and Donald Trump with uh, Prince Charles, now King Charles, and they're saying they even manage to get along with unpopular American leaders. What are you talking about, unpopular? His popularity is fine. It's basically every American president is going to get 45% of the vote. He was at 42% with all the media against him. Totally unnecessary. But no matter what's going on, they cannot put a, a, a video of Donald Trump and avoid putting on video of Donald Trump without making a disparaging comments. Even with the death of a queen, a figure that's been around forever. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. You know what? Uh, let's go to the phones right now. Listening on WMNC in South Bend, Indiana. One of my favorite stations ever. South Bend's awesome. Sean, you're there. Hey, Sean. Hey, how you doing? It's Friday, Brian. What's going on? Well, um, you and Tucker were uh, talking about um, the undermining of gender and yeah. kind of as the basis of civilization. And this is something that happened in during the French Revolution. Uh, eventually, the Jacobins started pushing, you know, referring to everybody as citizen. And you could even be uh, thrown in jail uh, if you referred to someone as their gender, uh, as madam or, or monsieur. So um, we're heading down that path, and it's kind of scary to think about what happened, especially in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Do you think we're going to sober up at some point and realize this is totally asinine, it's idiotic, 
and it's not where the majority of the American people are? I mean, is the box office our only source of retribution and sanity? In the box office, the ballot box, I should say. I mean, right now it seems like it. Um, I mean, things, people talk about things like the parallel economy, and I think it's a great idea. But, I mean, when, when the mass media, when you talk about 90% of the media negative towards Trump or conservatives in general, it's hard to get footing. It really is. Uh, I just think, number one, you got to have the courage to speak out, especially if it's your kids in particular, grandkids or nephews. you got to speak out and say, you know, this is flat out wrong. Um, I also wonder, too, in talking to a lot of people, and I'm going to be t- discussing this on Saturday night on One Nation, uh, we can't get recruits now for any of the armed forces, even the Air Force. Uh, when it comes to cops, last night I was speaking to a police officer that served in the military. It's like they never stopped serving. And he said when he got on the state police, excuse me, the Albany police force, he said there were 1,200 people uh, up for the class. Thirteen were selected. Thirteen people uh, were selected for to hit, to go through. He says there were 100 people applying for about 500 slots right now in upstate New York, that nobody's trying to be cops. No one's going for the military. Why? Because people are discouraging the whole law enforcement and the red, white, and blue and the pride. I think that plays into it. But I also think it's an opportunity. Can you imagine if we got a man or woman who wanted to get a big, uh, a major office or a small office and just started talking about the need to compete as capitalists, to talk about the difference between men and women, girls and boys, the opportunity to compete, what's happened in the past, point out the fact that uh, you would think that 50% of the population is uh, gay and oppressed. It's actually a very small population. Not that there's anything wrong with that, obviously. When it comes to transgender, it's less than 1% of the population actually feels as though they're in the wrong gender. We're acting like it's every other person. If people talked insanities, brought numbers to the fray, and I think the American people will come out of the woodworks to support that man or that woman. I think it presents an opportunity. Um, listen, um, there's, a, there's a sense that things uh, are, have gotten so out of control that there's going to be some massive change. And I think it gives an opportunity for people like Republicans in traditionally blue cities, which is every major city in the country, uh, in blue states. Uh, maybe Republicans, if they can get their act together, their message clear. And that's one of sanity uh, over insanity and patriotism over anti-patriotic uh, behavior, I think as a real opportunity. Listen, when we come back, I'm going to take more of your calls, one 408 7669 I also want to go over something else. Uh, they are relentless. Last night, the announcement of another investigation of President Donald Trump, this time on his record fundraising. They think there's something unsavory about it. Have you seen the crowd in Pennsylvania? Have you seen Truth Social? There's a reason why he gets big crowds and why his social media platform's doing well. Believe it or not, America... A lot of people like him a lot. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. The hypocrisy of the Democrats' uh, d- Democrats' approach right now. If Joe Biden thinks that MAGA Republicans are the are a threat to the very foundations of our republic, why is the Democratic Party he leads spending tens of millions of dollars across the country trying to get MAGA Republicans elected, nominated in GOP primaries? They did it in. They're doing it right now in New Hampshire. They did it in Colorado. They did it in Michigan. They're doing it in California. They're doing it across the country. They're spending tens of millions of dollars trying to make sure that the most extreme 
mainstream people, the people who deny the election results, who, who called Mike Pence a traitor, uh, are, are the ones who are the nominees because they think they're going to be easier to beat. It's total hypocrisy. 100 percent correct. So that is part of the leadership thing that President Biden is missing an opportunity. He's not capable. He's probably not capable of doing it or strong enough to stand up to his own party and say, listen, James Clyburn, I'm going to go make a speech. I'm really upset that these super PACs are out there pushing, pushing people forward like Doug Mastriano, who seems like a good guy, but he has no interest in broadening his organization and making a, uh, making a, uh, a solid run for the governorship. Evidently, he was within four points of Shapiro, who's not a strong candidate, and he still has not formed a PAC. He has not uh, uh, got a coherent message. He's not doing a ton of press, not doing much local, has not built up his staff. So to me, you're not a serious candidate, even though this guy's got a Ph.D. in history, obviously a very good speaker, communicator, but he doesn't seem to be putting the effort in. Part of the reason that Mastriano won the nomination is because of Democrats. Part of the reason why Bulldog, uh, who I think is strong, but evidently doesn't appeal to the mass New Hampshire audience, he is uh, the weakest candidate that Democrats view in New Hampshire, and they bolstered him up. So if President Biden is really worried about the future of democracy in this country and the rise of extremist candidates and extremism in our nation, why are they putting money to make sure these extremists run for major political office? Because along the way, uh, in your view, extremists are, in in some people's view, are people that agree you should uh, build a wall, that you should redo trade deals, that we should bring manufacturing back. But for traditional extremist behavior, don't allow your party to promote it. Very simple. And say, yeah, that whole MAGA doctrine I'm upset about, the extreme MAGA uh, followers, those ones who think think that the election was frozen, uh, was uh, thrown and the votes were flipped and things that can't be proven and the court cases that fell fell on their face were actually valid and there were corrupt judges and all those things that didn't take place. Well, you don't go out of your way to make sure those candidates are front and center. And that's what Mark Thiessen had pointed out. And Mark Thiessen's always, to me, a key guest because he, he knows that President Trump cooperated with him on a book. He knows the thing that President Trump has done is transformed the party he believes in a positive way. But he's also more of a traditional Republican, but open like Ari Fleischer to the fact that Donald Trump came in, shook things up for the better for a party that was maybe thinking too international, that maybe thinking was going a little bit too global, that maybe should have been thought thinking a little bit uh, in the 80s and 90s about what will happen to manufacturing and workers if we continue to allow uh, these trade deals to take manufacturing out of this country. In the long term, it won't be good. Donald Trump always thought about that in the 80s. And you know what? People like Mark Thiessen came around and said, yeah, that should be part of it. And suddenly it's the Republicans with the base of blue, uh, blue-collar workers. It's Republicans that are beginning to win over Hispanics, not with a great ad campaign and, ca- and a catchy catchphrase, but they're doing it by, by their actions and their policies. And that's why it looks as though I can't believe this. If you look at the uh, popularity of, the, of Joe Biden and the Hispanic community, it's basically 45 percent approve, 45 percent disapprove. Well, they're looking to the Republican. My goodness, if the Republicans were able to get maybe even 20 percent of the African-American vote, which I think is abysmal, they should go for more, but they have less. If they are somebody that can get 50 percent of the Hispanic vote, the, the Democrats are doomed. And if they continue to talk about things like how bad Donald Trump is instead of things like crime, inflation, and our defense spending, I believe that they're doomed too. Jim Jordan weighed in last night with Laura Ingram 
on the agenda that we should be talking about as a country. Cut to. Think about just the past couple weeks. We've had Eliza Fletcher gets murdered when she goes out for a run in her own neighborhood. There's a county in Maryland now that's imposed a curfew because crime is so bad. There was a Washington Redskins football player who was shot when he was simply going out for dinner. That all happened the last couple weeks. And what were Joe Biden and the Democrats up to? Joe Biden was raiding the home of the president of the United States. They were taking the phone of a sitting member of Congress. They were calling half the country fascists and extremists. And then he signed legislation that is going to unleash, as as Chip said, 87,000 IRS agents to come harass we the people. That's what they've been up to while they've been passing these policies that are leading to the record crime we see in every major urban area in this country. So the American people, they can say what they want in the big press and the media. But the American people get the facts, and they're going to show up in a big way, I believe, in 61 days. I will say this. Think about this. If you see the size of President, former President Trump's crowd in Pennsylvania and the passion which they brought, you know, I was texting with somebody from Axios. I didn't get permission to use his name, uh, but he was at the event. And I said, what did you think? You've been at all of them really for the last seven years. And he said, uh, and I read it to you earlier this week, but I'll just paraphrase now. He said the emotion is so strong and the anger is so great. He can't see anybody else getting the nomination or any other politician getting this type of crowd. The next day, the president of the United States on Labor Day, where everybody is off, appearing in front of unions in a pro-union message, he gets about 100 people. And they try to make it seem like it's a big audience, but it's about three deep standing room only because there are no chairs. That's it. But they use that phrase. American people want problems solved. They don't want their former presidents raided. To me, you'll never, you'll never ever explain to me accurately the reason for a raid on that. And the leaks that have taken place over the so-called top-secret documents, right to the Washington Post and New York Times, fly in the face of what you say of top-secret documents that should not be discussed in public. And now we understand, just to update you, in case you don't know, the special master uh, that was uh, appointed... And they said, give me five names, Justice Department, FBI, and give me five names, uh, Trump team. And I'm going to pick a special master to go through all these things, a, uh, an unaffiliated, bonded person, honest, to go through and decide what is real and what is not, what is the personal property of Donald Trump and what isn't, and how pervasive this was. Well, they've just appealed the ruling, which means everything goes on hold. So they're appealing the ruling on the special master. Uh, we'll give you the latest on that, but the revelation came as the Justice Department's court filing asking the judge, Aileen, Aileen Cannon, to let it continue to look through the paperwork because she stopped the looking through of this classified paperwork because some of this stuff is attorney-client privilege and she believes executive privilege. So the record seized by the FBI at the Trump Mar-a-Lago estate, uh, well, no one's going anywhere. The FBI is frustrated by this because things didn't go their direction, so they leaked the entire situation uh, to the Washington Post. So this is what I was talking about as I went to break last. A federal grand jury in Washington is examining the formation and spending uh, of a fundraising operation created by President Trump after his loss in 2020. He was soliciting millions of dollars, uh, asserting that the results have been marred by widespread voting fraud. According to subpoenas issued by the grand jury, the contents of which were described by the to the New York Times, shocker, uh, that the Justice Department is interested in the inner workings of Save America PAC, uh, Trump's main fundraising vehicle after the election. Let me see. They are investigating his inaugural fund. They are investigating his fundraising ability. They're investigating what he took after he left the Oval Office. Now they're investigating his super PAC design to get him and his allies into office. That doesn't bother you. It should. Thanks so much for listening to the Brian Kilmeade Radio Show on the road in Albany. Don't move.
Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. You know the phone number, 1-866-408-7669. It's going to be an interesting hour. Geraldo Rivera wants me to buy some time. He's just getting out of the shower. And Joel Berry, managing editor of the Babylon Bee, co-author of the Babylon Bee Guide to Democracy. It's called Fun. And uh, we'll be taking your phone calls as well. We're privileged to come to you from uh, the train station in Albany, New York. Uh, thanks to Paul Vandenberg. He's going to be on with us a little bit later this hour. Uh, to go inside Albany, the state capital, as you know, listening around the country and around the world. You may not know that, but there's a sense here in New York that there could be a change and that Lee Zeldin's got a legitimate shot against a truly overmatched, out-of-her-death Kathy Hochul. But the inside story is really to be known and to be learned in the state's capital. So before we get to Geraldo, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The Ukrainian people are fighting heroically to defend themselves from Russian aggression. And they are rightly demanding to live in freedom and to shape their own future. To not I, have it be dictated by Russia. Yeah, uh, and things are certainly changing. An all new axis of evil. Do you hear about this? Josh Rogan wrote about it today's Washington Post. Russia forming the black-hatted worldwide outlaws as they deem ties as they actually have... Uh, Grown ties with North Korea, China, and Iran, while slowly bleeding out in battle after battle with the determined Ukrainian fighting force, what this means for the world. Number two. This is a total political hit on a former president because they're fearful he's going to be the president again. Uh, That is Mike Davis last night uh, with Laura Ingram. Relentless. That's what the DOJ is showing when it comes to Trump. Appealing the special master ruling last night and the Mar-a-Lago raid documents and now targeting its main fundraising arm while the government sits on Hunter's laptop and the big guy's million-dollar paydays. Number one. Think about just the past couple weeks. We've had Eliza Fletcher gets murdered when she goes out for a run in her own neighborhood. And what were Joe Biden and the Democrats up to? Joe Biden was raiding the home of the president of the United States. They were calling half the country fascist and extremist. Yeah, that is Jim Jordan, of course. The fight is on for into- uh, as intolerance on all sides dominates the midterms. The latest to brawl overmatched Governor Hochul of New York, Governor DeSantis of Florida, all in the wake of the ugliness between hoodie socialist John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Meanwhile, who is solving our problems on crime? Who's solving the problems on the border, inflation and gas prices? Nobody. Right now, Geraldo Rivera, if he was given the job, he would solve all those things because there's nothing he can't do and there's nobody he hasn't met. Geraldo, welcome back. I never met the queen, and I, I, regret, I regret that. She seems such an elegant and, and compassionate person and certainly such a fine symbol for the, uh, the British Empire in its waning days, Brian. But, you know, Geraldo... Uh, she seems like a fine person, certainly a, a historic person who's seen uh, so much in her lifetime. I get it. But the other thing is people are forgetting, or are they? In the 1980s and 90s, Princess Diana swamped them. The world was against them and sided with her. And when her uh, stories of uh, how, she, how she described the family and her tragic death, I mean, the, the royal family was on its back, on its heels, wouldn't you say? And what a remarkable turnaround of late. Uh, definitely. I happened to be in uh, France when Diana died tragically. And it was just one of those serendipitous things, Brian. My driver who picked me up, I was actually on my boat in uh, 
the island, British island of uh, Menorca, uh, and the British flags were lowered to half staff. And I thought the Queen had died then, that's 97, 98. Uh, but then I found out it was Diana. It was shocking. I went immediately to Paris, just one of those lucky things. My driver was an associate of Henri Paul, the driver of the fatal uh, limousine where Diana died. So I had great access. Uh, and it was stunning how the, the royal family uh, was thought to be, if not uh, responsible, then certainly cheering on Diana's uh, untimely uh, yeah. demise. I, I became friends with uh, uh, Dodi Fayed's father, Muhammad al-Fayed, uh, the owner of Harrods Department Store, and he definitely thought that uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, the, the Queen's husband, was... And uh, British MI6 was responsible for Diana's death. I never found any proof of that. I don't believe that. But there, as you point out correctly, uh, you know, now we're singing her praises, but there, there have been controversies in the past, Ron. And you know, the thing is, think about the timing of Harry and Meghan Markle. Evidently, uh, know somebody pretty familiar with J.R. Mulringer who's writing Harry's book. This is going to be the utter definition of explosive. It's going to blow up the whole royal family. And basically labeled him in an Oprah interview as racist. And now he takes his money, comes to America, feels as though he's high and mighty. Think about the embarrassment. Uh, what's already happened. Now he's got to come back and there's really no role for him. This guy was beloved by the U.K. This guy's serving in the military. He wanted to be one of the guys people kind of could relate to. And now whatever's happened behind the scenes... I don't think he could feel pretty good about his decisions at this moment. What do you think? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Craig and I happened just by one of the serendipitous uh, timing, again, like Diana's death. Uh, we were in Helmut Province in Afghanistan, one of our many trips to Afghanistan, and we followed uh, Prince Harry into Helmut Province. We, we missed him by a couple of days. But I must say that everybody in that very, very dangerous place where the Marines were fighting for their lives, for our lives. Uh, everyone was extolling the virtue of uh, Harry's courage, how even though he was a royal, he was uh, in the mix. Uh, he d didn't stay in headquarters. He went on patrols and so forth. So I, I came to hold Harry in very high regard. The whole thing with Meghan Markle, you know, you, you marry a movie star, you got to deal with a lot of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and the fact that brought race into that, uh, the issue of race into the royal family. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think because of the military uh, back, uh, experience that I, I feel that I have a connection with him, uh, and I sympathize with him perhaps more than uh, most people, Brian. I want to pivot, if I can, to the president's tone over the last two weeks. This whole Mara, ultra MAGA people, so these silly. the, so, the, so the semi-fascists. I mean, what he's saying, it's just bizarre over the last two weeks. And then he walks back and he says, I don't mean everybody, but everybody. Mitch McConnell, I don't mean, I don't want to get into names, but I mean everybody. So, you know, what made America great? Strong borders, low taxes, uh, redoing all the free trade agreements, pressuring Central America to control their population, not getting involved in foreign wars, but building up the military to be able to fight them. That pretty much defines it. You may not like some tweets, but that pretty much is what Donald Trump brought to the Republican Party and people that believe in that. Doesn't, didn't necessarily doesn't mean you have to raid the Capitol. They're meshing two things in. Now, let me tell you if you agree with me on this. This is an opportunity for President Biden to reset. He could say, listen, I have a major address for the American public. 
The address is we got to stop doubting our elections. Do the best we can to secure. You go ahead and have legal fights if you wish. But for the last 20 years, everybody that loses protests and screams corruption. In 2001, Al Gore was magnanimous, but a lot of his supporters weren't. As Karl Rove pointed out, there was, there was uh, James Clyburn led a delegation of 30-plus to try to get for the delegates in Ohio, I had forgotten about this, to flip and go for John Kerry. There was no substance in that. That was wrong. In 2016, the illegitimate, illegitimate cries about Donald Trump, that was wrong, as was Donald Trump wrong. If you can condemn both sides... On this very critical issue, we might be able to reset the way we're looking at elections where everyone thinks there's corruption every time we lose. And, you know, we talk to people all the time that were Democrat or Republican. They're like, yeah, that, that was thrown. The Russians threw this. Uh, George W. Bush got his brother to throw that. And no one ever believes that the right man or woman won. This was an opportunity to reset that, call out both parties and then call them in. Do you agree with that premise? I do, and I was very disappointed by uh, Joe Biden's tone. And I thought it was interesting that he made the speech in Wilkes-Barre, not in Philadelphia, where they have record homicides, uh, where the streets are running red with blood, and the, in the, there's a ghetto civil war going on there. Uh, Biden, you know, sidestepped all the real issues plaguing the people of Pennsylvania and went off on Great that point. tirade yeah. uh, that I thought was very, very unfortunate. And, and uh, it seems to be uncharacteristic of him. I don't know who, who gave him that idea that uh, th- that speech where you call half of America idiots is, uh, <laughs> is appropriate. I, I was very, very disappointed in Biden. I said so at the time. Were you surprised as you flipped around almost, and I know you do, then almost everybody gave him thumbs up except for maybe uh, an anchor or two on CNN that had somebody military in their family that said, great idea, finally he's fighting back, calling out Trump. He went almost a year and a half without saying my predecessor or the guy that was here before me. Now we can't stop saying Donald Trump, and now Republicans can't stop saying Joe Biden. It's a it weird time. So it seems fake to me. It seems poll-driven. It seems Ron Klain uh, authored. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, James Carvel-esque. It's, uh, it's, it's really uh, so unfortunate. And it uh, erodes the one thing that Biden had going for him, has to a certain extent, uh, going for him is uh, that, that he's a, a nice person. He's a you know, compassionate person. Uh, uh, you know, he, he seems to have a good heart. I mean, the Hunter Biden stuff's another topic. But uh, when, when Biden goes off and becomes so strident, and so, uh, uh, you know, inflammatory in his rhetoric and using the Marines and red background with flames. I thought it was Satan coming up out of, the, <laughs> out of hell itself. Uh, it, I, I just, uh, you know, you just wonder, is everybody infected with this disease of uh, opportunism, of ruthless, uh, you know, partisanship where the reality doesn't matter only if it works for you politically? I mean, it's uh, it's. You know, I long for the days. I remember when I was, you know, uh, a young man in New York State, and you're in the Capitol now, where the 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 presiding officer in the Capitol, the governor, was Nelson Rockefeller, a Republican, a liberal Republican. The attorney general of New York State was Louis Lefkowitz at that time, another uh, Republican, another liberal Republican, Jacob Javits, uh, the dean of the United States Senate at that time. Uh, another liberal Republican. We used to have liberals in the Republican Party, as I am. 
but no more. Now uh, the parties are divided ideologically, red versus blue. There's a, a kind of uh, a, a savage uh, uh, aspect to the uh, to the disdain we have for the other uh, the other side. Uh, you know, I, I long for the days when each party had liberals, moderates, and and conservatives. Uh, you know, and I, I just uh, I still I worry for the country. And, and, you know, I got a lot of uh, press, most of it negative, in the last couple of days, where I said I would never support Donald Trump again because of his election denialism and what it's done to erode confidence in elections. You're right to point out, uh, you know, other examples of that uh, happening, but nothing ever approaching the scale of this where the Constitution itself was in peril, Brian. Um, lastly, just your, your thoughts on... If a Republican nominee is not Donald Trump, whoever it is, whether it's DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Christy Nome, Tom Cotton, Mike Pompeo, whoever it is, do you believe they are attacked and it's every media outlet except a handful against that Republican nominee again? Or is it just Donald Trump that people are so dead set against the massive investigations? They launched another one yesterday on Trump. Is that is that going to be the story for every Republican? Oh, I hate the way they've weaponized, the Democrats have weaponized the Department of Justice, and I suspect that that is absolutely true. And you raise an excellent uh, excellent question for all of us. Uh, is this just about Donald Trump, or is this something uh, deeper where, uh, by any means necessary? Uh, you know, if it was Mitt Romney, would, uh, would the Democrats be so savage in their attacks? I think, sadly... That Trump has certainly exacerbated the situation. He's a very uh, inflammatory figure, but I, I worry that the, there's a divide now that it's very difficult to uh, to bridge. Uh, you mentioned. I just want to qu- quickly reference Liz Eldon uh, and Kathy yeah. Hochul. Uh, that's a very intriguing race. I mean, she obviously came out of nowhere, lieutenant governor of New York, uh, and elevated with Andrew Cuomo's uh, travails. Uh, but whether or not she can sustain, a, a, you know, it'd be really interesting to see what New Yorkers, uh, you know, beset by crime and, and disorder, uh, what secretly they do. I remember very clearly when David Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York, ran against Rudy Giuliani and everybody said, uh, you know, I'm going to vote for Dinkins. And the count was uh, tallied and it turned out that Giuliani won that second side second time they ran against each other. So it'll be interesting to see if people say Kathy Hochul, Kathy Hochul, and they vote for Lee Zeldin. Uh, there's a sense here, and Paul Vandenberg, uh, who is, uh, knows everything about Albany, says, number one, he predicted that Cuomo would go down and not come back up. He doesn't have many allies. And number two, he says Zeldin's got a real shot. And I think that he's starting to make some inroads in Manhattan, uh, and that would be key. They say he needs between 29 and 31 percent if he wants to win. Uh, in Manhattan. And I'll tell you, I have not gone into Penn Station of late and not had somebody standing at the escalator saying vote for Lee Zeldin and handing out cards. And I've never seen that before. He's mounted a pretty good campaign. He's a, you know, he's a a good, solid performer. I I don't think he's super flashy or, you know, uh, particularly articulate, but he gets the message out. He's a hard worker and military uh, guy, military guy, which is to me, Crucial, crucial for, right. that, uh, for that job. Hey, uh, Geraldo, your mission now is to have a great weekend. 
Thanks, right? All right. Thanks. Thanks for the boat. Uh, what a shocker. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Geraldo Rivera. Well, once again, reminding how narrow and empty my life is uh, as he heads to his yacht. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's so funny. Uh, listen, when we come back, we'll take your calls, one 408 7669 We're on the road in Albany, but, of course, wherever you are, you could be on a national radio show in just a moment. Bottom of the hour, we have some laughs with the Babylon Bee. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. You know, I want to be very clear up front. Not every Republican is a MAGA Republican. Not every Republican embraces the extreme ideology. I know because I've worked with them in the mainstream Republicans, and there's still a few of them left. But the extreme set of MAGA Republicans has chosen to go backwards, full of anger, violence, hate, and division. Not really. Um, (laughs) That's just not true. And that's my whole point, is that the people that have worked with them believe everything Donald Trump believes. They just would do it differently. For example, Rob Portman voted with him. Senator John Cornyn uh, voted with him on guns. Uh, Portman was with him on infrastructure. Senator Cassie with him him on infrastructure. Uh, Almost every one of them is not one that isn't uh, for strong borders. Not one of them didn't vote for tax reform that Donald Trump did. Not one of them wasn't for the Donald Trump redoing NAFTA with the USMCA. Not one of them was not in for the new trade deals with South Korea and others. Uh, all of them, uh, for the most part, some of them disagree with them pulling out of Afghanistan. I think that's normal. All of them were on board with isolating Iran and for the Abraham Accords. That's what the MAGA agenda was. You might not like the storming the Capitol. I don't know anyone that thought that was a good move to have the rally and to storm the Capitol. Never a good move. Even to go to the Capitol, not a good move. But that is not radical MAGA behavior. That's a bunch of people overzealous who won out of control, don't know what was behind it, and thought elections were being stolen. I don't think it was stolen. But I do think things happen that need to be examined, like the holding back of Operation Warp Speed's vaccine before the election and the Hunter Biden laptop suppression of that story that would have absolutely affected the outcome. Those are real. The other stuff isn't. Radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. You know, I want to be very clear up front. Not every Republican is a MAGA Republican. Not every Republican embraces the extreme ideology. I know because I've worked with them in the mainstream Republicans, and there's still a few of them left. But the extreme set of MAGA Republicans has chosen to go backwards, full of anger, violence, hate, and division. Wow. Uh, that is the message from President Biden over the last two weeks and various times he's given the same speech over and over. Somehow he believes uh, Geraldo thinks it's Ron Klain, but I think it's Joe Biden. Uh, he believes that that's the way to do it, uh, to call out Donald Trump and say they were unacceptable threat to democracy rather than attack crime, inflation, uh, gas prices, uh, certainly anything at the border. Uh, and, you know, what is going on and maybe not helping out our allies overseas. With us right now to tackle this and some of the farcical nature of politics today is a man that does it on a regular basis. Uh, he is uh, from the Babylon Bay, and he is going to be joining us uh, right now. Uh, uh, Joel Berry is with us now. 
And Joel is a co-author of the book, The Bible on B, Guide to Democracy. Joel, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate uh, it. Hey, no problem. So the first off, is some of the stuff writing itself that you are actually covering, <laughs> when you see some of the speeches and some of the things that come out, do you say to yourself, did I write that? Did I load his teleprompter? I mean, in a guy that was supposed to be unifying, he goes out of his way with the worst backdrop in the history of, politica- uh, of politics in front of Independence Hall. He dupes some Marines to stand behind him and then gives one of the most divisive <laughs> speeches ever. And I'm saying the whole thing is humorous, if not tragic. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I, you know, that, that, that speech was so outrageous, not just in what he said, but just the visual presentation of it was so outrageous and, and so offensive. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, us at the Babylon Bee and our, our twisted minds, we're looking at it and thinking that he just gave us the best gift. We have, a, we have material for the next week now. Like, you know, right. All we have to do is paint the little Hitler mustache on him, and, and the joke writes itself. I mean, it, it really is. And, and it, you know, while it is uh, frustrating and, and, and outrageous that he's being so divisive, uh, there is so much that is just inherently funny. Um, about the way he's behaving and the things that he's saying. It's just it's just right for comedy. And, Joel, one of the times that you guys became the news is what's going on with social media. A lot of people have experienced it, especially in my building at Fox. All of a sudden, their account's suspended. Uh, some One, they're being sarcastic. Number two, it's because they're saying something about a vaccine that might be some people think is inaccurate, or they say something they thought, thought would be dangerous, labeled as dangerous. What happened to you guys? Oh man, well, I mean, we've we've been fighting the social media battle, uh, you know, for years now. Um, you know, it started with Facebook and their, and their partnership with Snopes. They kind of they used the, this 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 weird uh, fact checking scheme to to come after the Babylon Bee. Um, but you know, it, we've also been uh, kicked off of, of Twitter uh, for misgendering uh, Rachel Levine, the the assistant HHS uh, secretary, um, we who was a man great, and became a woman, right? <laughs> That's Would right, he- a biological man, and uh, uh, we. What was <laughs> what had happened was uh, USA Today had named Rachel Levine their Woman of the Year, and <laughs> again, you, you talk about how the comedy just writes itself. Um, we thought that was so funny. We, we decided to kind of you know troll a little bit and, and make uh, we, we created our own award and we named uh, Rachel Levine uh, the Babylon Bee's uh, Man of the Year, <laughs> and uh, that was that was a bridge too far for Twitter, and, and that, that's what ended up getting us locked out. Which is, I think it's time to go to Truth Social, maybe. I don't think they would lock you out on that. I'm pretty sure it won't. Uh, Joel, do you find humor in this on a regular basis? And do you, is it social media something you guys need desperately? Because, I mean, you, you need to be on Facebook. Do you need to be on Twitter and Instagram? Yeah, well, you know, we do we do uh, depend on it. A lot of our traffic does come from social media. And it, it, it is very important, I think, to, to fight for our right to be on these platforms. I know we have uh, alternatives like Truth Social and Parler and Getter and things like that, but um, Twitter is still very much uh, the public square. It's where most people are, and, and um, I, I think it's important to fight that battle for, for our right uh, to speak in the public square. Um, but it's, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the encouraging thing is that even as we've been kind of suppressed on social media, um, our fans are still finding us. You know, the Internet's an amazing thing. Um, it's very hard to suppress a compelling voice or, or a truthful voice. And, and uh, what we're finding now is a lot of our traffic's just organic. People visit the site, uh, people subscribe to our newsletter, and, and they're still able to get their, their morning Babylon B fix uh, without having to go to these uh, big tech oligarchs to, you know, to 
and depend on them to, to show them what they think they should see. So where did the idea of putting this into a book come from? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, um, we, uh, we had a um, – last year we, we, we released a book called The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness, which, which was a big hit. And um, we were, we were kind of trying to think about, you know, what, what we wanted to, to write about this year. And uh, it's very timely because I, I think just the word democracy um, is a word that is often spoken with such uh, sanctimony and, and self-righteousness these days by, by people that don't even really understand what democracy is. And um, so we kind of play with that idea a little bit. And, and this is a guide to how to protect and defend and, and be a, uh, a guardian of our, our sacred and holy democracy. You know, insert sarcasm font here. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, there's also a little education in the book. I think the, the great thing about writing a book is it, it allows us to get a little more material in there um, than, than you'll see in our, our standard, you know, daily headlines. Um, we talk about, um, you know, the system that America um, is designed to be. We're not a pure democracy. We're a, a constitutional republic, and, um, you know, our system was designed to – to defend against the, you know, the tyranny of the majority. And so we, we get to, uh, you know, sprinkle in a little education uh, in with the comedy when we write these books. So, you know, one thing I noticed, for example, I mean, there's so much comedically available with Joe Biden. I think with even with his own family. I mean, the way he loses himself, the invisible handshakes, uh, the way when Barack Obama shows up, he all virtually disappears. Uh, you know, he's got to be walked to the podium everywhere he goes. At the very, but no one brings that up. In fact, I remember during the debates when it looked like Joe Biden was done, when he was no longer even called on on the debates, before it looked like Bernie Sanders was going to get the nomination, they panicked and pushed him forward. Remember Jason Sudeikis played Joe Biden as a comedic look at Joe Biden? He was hysterical. Talked too loud, interrupted people, made no sense. It was fun. That's what used to happen all the time. Remember Ronald Reagan was always duped as old. They said, uh, you know, they made fun of... Uh, every president, Republican and Democrat, if you look at Carson. And then when he gets the job, the guy that imitates Joe Biden just acts like Joe Biden. You know, the guy that interviewed Alec Baldwin just acts like an angry Donald Trump. They've lost the idea of humor, but they did it intentionally. Does that blow you away? Yeah, you know, and that was a big part of what fed uh, the Babylon Bee's rise. You know, in 2016, when Trump was elected, I think a lot of comedians got this idea that you know, our democracy is, is in such danger now that, that comedy has to take the back burner. Our, you know, now we're going to use our platform full time to, <laughs> to uh, protect our democracy and get rid of Donald Trump. That, was, that became their mission. And they really, you know, they, they forgot what comedy is supposed to be. And, and so um, a lot of these jokes, I mean, the low hanging fruit with Biden, um, everything surrounding him. That you know, they dropped a lot of those jokes, and and here we are, the Babylon Bee, <laughs> low hanging fruit that no one else is picking up. We're like, okay, we'll we'll joke about it, and and uh, we we kind of became the avenue for that. Joel Berry, uh, congratulations on the book, The Babylon Bee Guide to Democracy. Uh, best of luck, and hopefully Elon Musk buys Twitter, puts you back as one of his first moves, uh, and brings some normalcy to the social media world. 
<laughs> we'll see. All right. Uh, go get him, Joel. Thanks. When we come back, Paul Vandenberg joins us and brings us inside what's happening in New York politics. When people talk about sleeper races and candidates in upsets, a lot of people point to the Senate race in Colorado. Others say, look out for what's happening in Washington. I say, and Paul believes, look out for the governor's race in bright blue New York. He'll explain when we come back on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's a combination of pro-criminal laws that we see passed in Albany. We have some district attorneys like Alvin Bragg refusing to enforce the law. You have some lax district attorneys, uh, judges, who are letting people out in some other cases where the prosecutors are asking for bail to be set. And then we end up reading about the repeat offenders. Uh, That is Lee Zeldin. He's the congressman from Long Island who wants to be the governor from New York. With me right now is Paul Vandenberg from W. G, DJ, right over here in Albany, New York. They're kind enough to uh, carry us here on 1300. Uh, thanks so much, Paul. Thanks so much for helping us last night, first off, telling everybody we were coming. Uh, great crowd. Appreciate you coming out, too, helping us at the end. It was a good night. Yeah. It was good. Now, now on this, I, I don't know the answer to this. I'll ask you. You were happy with last night, weren't oh, you? Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful facility. The, the egg looks like an egg, and what an incredible. They could do two shows at the same time in that building. Well, remember, one thing about the egg to, is the customer service there was outstanding. Yeah. You know, they, they made sure you had everything you need. They, when I arrived, they escorted me up. They brought me up in the back elevator. But then even where you were, you know, with your crew, I mean, you guys are up here from downstate. They had food. They had plenty to drink. I mean, they were they were just oh, yeah. they're on top of their game. They yeah. do a nice job there. I give them a lot of credit. It was good to see some people here. Uh, you told me something. You don't throw this out lightly. You would never have said this as much as you thought. I think Rob Astorino is a great guy and certainly a broadcaster. He started in broadcasting. Right. We knew he was going to win. Oh no, not at all. No, and, nobody, and you never would have said that, Paul. How long have you been in Albany? I've been doing radio here since 86. Since 86. How well do you know the political landscape? Locally? Pretty well. I know it very well. Very right. well. You know a lot of the players. You get a real sense of... You do. You uh, do. You told me something about Cuomo. I said, listen, he's going to have a comeback. He's got all this money. And what did you tell me? About uh, who? Andrew? Andrew. That uh, I don't think he'll ever run again. Why? Because, after, I, you know, it's my sense. I, I'm going... I'm, this isn't politics. It's more the human being. Andrew out for a little while, and it settles in what happened, what happened, what happened. And you think about running again, you know people are probably going to vote for you, that you probably were not your welcome at that point. Personally, I don't think he'd ever run again for anything, Andrew. And, and part of it is he has no friends. He has, yeah, you're right about that. He has very few friends. You know, that was always, when he was here, remember, he, he grew up here. He went to school in New York, but he really grew up here when his father was governor. And there was so much said about him over time. You know, Fred Dicker did the show in this time slot before you. And Fred was uh, the state editor for the New York Post. He did the show from the state capitol for 22 years for me. And one thing that Fred Fred brought up many times was that Mario Cuomo told Fred years ago that he didn't trust his son. He would to tell the truth. Fred told that story many times. And he was always quite concerned about, about what he said. And, um, you know, I, I think that came to fruition up here. He just, he doesn't have very many friends. Uh, the, that whole story blew up on him. 
and he's gone now, and, and I think people, they haven't forgotten him, but he's pretty much gone. I was, I was surprised the last couple of weeks to see him reemerge. There's, there's, just, there's nowhere for he's him at this Yeah, well, the thing is, you don't necessarily need somebody to have a beer with. You need somebody that respects you. Hey, you know, this guy you gets do. things done. That's what you're talking about. You know, it doesn't matter how many people go to your barbecue, Absolutely. but you have the respect is what you're referring to. Right. But you said something to me last night that I got the sense, but I'm on Long Island, which right. is looking more of the national scene, but I see him all the time. And I'm pulling for him, even before he, when he was running in Congress. You think Lee Zeldin has more than just a shot? Oh, no. I think, I think Lee Zeldin's going to be the next governor of New York. And there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, first and foremost, Brian, I'm not buying into this garbage that the media is telling us about how it's not going to be a, a, a red wave. It's going, to be, uh, it's going to be split up. No, it's not. As we get closer to Election Day, people are going to settle in on issues that, like you talk about all the time, inflation. The border, crime, crime. The people, this, these are the issues. Now, they're trying to sell us on the idea that abortion is the big issue. Get out of my life. That's not the big issue to people in the world today. It's just our New York. They're saying that it's a divisive, the, the, the deciding issue as so far in Michigan, but you're not buying it. Not at all. Not at all. You know, and you want to talk to me about Kansas? Okay, you're going to have these elections in the middle of August. You know, and one party not, needs to make a mes- needs to send a message. They're going to work hard, and they're going to work harder to get their people out, which is the case there. You're going to do this in the middle of the summer. You know, we saw the election downstate here in the middle of the summer where Molinaro was leading and he lost the race. Well, the, the, a lot of folks up here attributed that to the idea the Democrats just did a better job of getting people out. Remember, Molinaro had a three-point lead going into that. Molinaro is also kind of... Uh, you know, he's, he, he's kind of a late Republican to begin with, and right. I might have heard him a little bit, but I don't think the Republicans really got out to support him because the race was in the summer. But to get back to your original question, let me talk about uh, Zeldin. Zeldin is a guy, the Siena poll came out about three weeks ago up here, okay? And the Siena poll pointed out that Zeldin was at, I believe, 38%. Hochul, in a state that's dominant Democrat, dominant. Is it three to one? Yes. It, well, it's more two to one than three to one, but it's it's yeah. up. It's sixty to sixty to sixties in the thirties. I don't know exactly what it is now, but still, this is a dominant Democrat state. Hochul was at fifty three percent in that poll. Zeldin at thirty thirty eight, I think, was a thirty nine. But the key to that was Zeldin had very low name recognition. Now, wait a minute. What's she doing at fifty three percent in a state that's 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 two to one Democrat? Okay, and then the Trafalgar poll comes out two days later. She's at fifty one percent. And all and, right, and, and Zeldin's within three points. Zeldin, well, the Trafalgar poll that came out this week has him within three or four points. But what has he done? He's he hasn't done a lot. But the one thing he has done, he was on my show last week. He was here in Albany. He's in New York City, and he's working in New York City. And he told us he's got to get twenty nine percent of the vote in New York City. Now, Brian. Listen, uh, you know, you got to read the human being in some of this, too. These people in New York City, you're going to tell me they're going to vote for the Democrat from Buffalo? Who's, who's letting giving... everybody out of crime? She's I mean, letting people this... out of jail. Yeah. She's telling you that abortion's the big issue. She gives the Pagoulas a billion-plus dollars for the Buffalo Bills. And, and she's, she's done nothing for the people in this state. Now we've got a massive story in the Times Union up here yesterday about how she's taking kickbacks. Well, I say kickbacks. Kickbacks are strong. She's taking money from these, uh, her campaign is taking an awful lot of money from these preferred firms that are getting all kinds of money for COVID test kits, and they're overcharging the state by a, by a, by a rate of $13 to $5 that the others are, are charging. I mean, the stories with this woman do not get better. And, and by the way, she's missed lockdown, number one. Number two is, 
Uh, she told people who were conservatives in New York State, like Lee Zeldin, go to Florida. Exactly. Who ever heard of that approach to, exactly. to winning over voters? Go to Florida? Nobody. And, and did you see this yesterday where DeSantis really pushed back hard on hard. her in that regard? He pushed back hard. He now, said he, she is Cuomo 2.0. He's right. She is. She wants people to leave the state. You know, this is what Cuomo did, too. Cuomo was a guy that didn't like conservatives, didn't think it was, this was a place for Republicans, conservatives. And she's the same way. But, Brian, she's never been elected to this, okay? Right. You know, and now all of a sudden, this story this week is a big deal because we had this thing here called the Buffalo Billion where people were convicted, including the guy closest to Cuomo, Joe Percoco. They all, four of them went to jail, three or four of them, four of them went to jail, okay? Now some of them are out because of an appeal, but still they went to jail. They were convicted on every charge. This story the Times Union laid out yesterday is pretty much the same thing wow. the way I see it. And it's, now is anything going to happen between now and election day to her? No. There's a Democrat AG in this state, and I don't think the FBI is going to go after it. But it's, it's quite a story nonetheless. She's not going to get elected. For Predicting Zeldin will oh, win. Yeah. And oh, we yeah. heard it here first. Alice, make sure we record this hour. <laughs> Paul, thanks so much for Thank everything. You, we'll thanks see you again soon. Up. Brian Kilmichel from Albany, New York. Don't move. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. And that last voice, of course, is Kathy Lee Gifford, but Frank Gifford got between us and so did a few years. Uh, and my wife, Dawn. Uh, those things would stop us from happening. Uh, we, uh, I'm very happy we're going to have the CEO of Parent Associates on. Um, he is uh, uh, Ethan uh, Corin, and he, is, uh, he wrote a book called Benghazi, A New History of the Fiasco That Pushed America and the World to the Brink. And by the way, President Obama got a total pass on that. Uh, what he did there uh, by killing Gaddafi, uh, fueling the guerrillas there and the rebels with absolutely no plan to help out after or before urged on by the Arab League, who disappeared once the military uh, clash began. And now it basically is allied with Russia. Been a total disaster. Uh, Shannon Bream is standing by. We have a lot to discuss this hour. And, of course, the passing of the Queen about 24 hours ago, a historic time. The woman's been around uh, in power for about 70 years. So let's get to the big three and then to Shannon. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The Ukrainian people are fighting heroically to defend themselves from Russian aggression, and they are rightly demanding to live in freedom and to shape their own future, to not have it be dictated by Russia. That is the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Lloyd Austin. All new axis of evil. Uh, Russia forming this uh, black-hatted worldwide outlaw group. Uh, they have ties now, thick ties, to North Korea, to China, to Iran, where they're negotiating in desperation in many cases because Russia is running out of people, they're running out of armaments, and they're being bled out by the Ukrainians who are starting to make gains in Kyrgyzstan and kick the Russians right out of Kharkiv in its entirety. Look out. Number two. This is a total political hit on a former president because they're fearful he's going to be the president again. Mike Davis weighing in. Relentless. That's what the DOJ is showing when it comes to Trump. Appealing the special master ruling from a judge last week uh, on the Mar-a-Lago document. Mar-a-Lago documents are now targeting his main fundraising arm while the government sits on Hunter's laptop and the big guy's million-dollar paydays. Where's the money? 
Number one. Think about just the past couple weeks. We've had Eliza Fletcher gets murdered when she goes out for a run in her own neighborhood. And what were Joe Biden and the Democrats up to? Joe Biden was raiding the home of the president of the United States. They were calling half the country fascist and extremist. Oh, yeah. Besides that, not much. Uh, that is Jim Jordan. The fight is on as intolerance on all sides dominates the midterms. The latest to brawl overmatched Governor Hochul and New York of New York and Governor Ron DeSantis. All in the wake of the ugliness between hoodie socialist John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Meanwhile, who is solving the problems of the country? Crime, the border, inflation, and gas prices. Those would be perfect topics. And I can't get into helping Shannon Bream do Fox News Sunday, and she doesn't need my help. But, Shannon, if you wanted to pick out topics that Americans care about, Shannon Bream, you might want to think if you want me to get – you want to get a pen or uh, – Yeah, I got okay. one. Okay, Maybe good. Five. Crime, the border, okay. inflation, mm-hmm. and gas. Mm-hmm. You attack those four things, the American people will love you. But so far, we're not having people really do that. Why? You know what? Um, because they can't agree on how to get there. I think that's the issue is that everybody wants those things to get better – but, you know, you've got this uh, checks and balances and system here, you know, legislative branch, executive, judicial. Um, and just within the legislative branch, you've got two sides who can't really agree on how you get there. But everybody agrees there are disasters on all of those fronts. And listen, right now, um, the president is in charge. This affects his numbers and his polling. Um, and you've seen it. We've seen this for months. There's been some slight improvement. But for the most part, Americans think he's getting it wrong on all those issues. So, uh, Shannon, uh, this news just came across. It looks like uh, Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch says they're making progress. going to have uh, a couple of days. We should have – oh, here's the story. I'll just – there you go. Uh, Gorsuch said a report slam, uh, stemming from the internal Supreme Court investigation into the leak of the draft opinion on uh, the Dobbs decision will be soon. Nobody has better sources inside the, uh, the Supreme Court than you. What does that tell you? Yeah, you know, Bill Mears, our amazing Supreme Court producer, and I um, have continued to dig on this story. We were told that the, um, the, I guess you would say the pool of potential suspects had been narrowed. Um, and, you know, we got a little bit more detail from Justice Gorsuch saying there was actually like an, a committee, an internal committee that's doing this investigation. We had asked the court repeatedly in recent weeks, is the investigation still ongoing? Is it done? Is there a conclusion? Is there an end date in sight? So it's helpful for Justice Gorsuch to be out there saying, like, yeah, we expect this report. Uh, we don't know if that's going to be a public report or not. But at least for these justices, I think many of them are very frustrated. You could hear it in his remarks as well. Like, this impacts our ability to relate to each other, trust the other justices, the clerks. I mean, their working relationship and how they communicate with each other, I think it's very important to these justices that they get answers. Uh, and he hints at that. That investigation's ongoing, and we'll get a report soon. I know, but, I mean, for one thing, I would think it's in their best interest to find out who the leaker is, because how do you going to know who to shield certain things from and who you're briefing and who you're not? So uh, we might have forgotten about it, but I imagine if you're Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, or anybody in the Supreme Court, you want to mm-hmm. get to the bottom of this, unless, of course, you know, and they're just wondering if it's going to be too damaging to get out. Do you think they know? I don't think they know yet. I mean, the chief justice would have probably the most updated information. He's the one who assigned the um, the inside Supreme Court marshal to get this done internally. Um, You know, we had asked many times, will there be, will you include the DOJ or the FBI? Will you bring in any outside resources? And to date, we've heard no indication that anything has been done along those lines. So I think the chief justice knows more than any of us do on this. But again, if most people, you know, it makes sense to suspect potentially that it was a clerk, they're gone. The ones from last term, they leave in July. They're on to their new jobs, their new lives. 
Um, we know at one point they've been asked for access to their cell phones and other information, um, and there had been some resistance to that. So we'll see what the chief's been able to get done, um, but he's kept this completely internal at this point. Uh, Shannon, just looking at what's happening now with the special master uh, and the uh, judge ruled last week that, hey, you know that Mar-a-Lago raid? I do think a special master should go through everything taken out of there and find out what's a current attorney-client privilege, what is executive privilege that still exists, and what's his personal stuff like his tax reform uh, headlines, uh, his tax forms, as well as uh, some other things that he did not want out. There is a, there's been an appeal to this. So what does it do for the investigation? Well, I mean, now we wait on that appeal because, listen, what the special master ruling means is that that's really going to slow things down. As you know, the judge said, you can continue whatever investigation you're doing, DOJ, but you cannot use these documents you took from Mar-a-Lago as part of a criminal investigation until a special master gets through them. So that's a huge wrench into whatever the DOJ is trying to do at this point. So, of course, they would appeal. I'd be really surprised if they didn't. Um, And as you know, uh, the judge said you can still go on with the national security um, review that's going on to look at the documents. It's a separate wing. But as far as the DOJ, this really kind of ties their hands at this moment. So we'll wait and watch for that appeal. Um, whether this ends up at the Supreme Court, I don't know. But it definitely delays progress that they have for whatever they're up to at this point. Well, how about this? Uh, we're inside 60 days soon. I mean, by the time mm-hmm. Monday, we hit Monday. Isn't there the, the unsaid rule that you don't bring up uh, political investigations this close to an election? Well, generally, that's thought to be in the context of a candidate. Now, President Trump is not on the ballot, technically, but, you know, in many of these races, um, the White House, many other Democrats continually invoke him. They want him to be on the ballot. So in a way, you could make an argument um, that this is, you know, you are talking about political campaigns, even though it's technically not a candidate. It certainly impacts the midterms. And so you would think they would observe that 60-day window, but there's nothing that says they have to. Shannon, uh, this Sunday is your debut on Fox News Sunday, and you'll be playing yourself on this live show every single Mm -hmm. week. Are you ready? Uh, I've taken notes from you, and (laughs) Bill Hammer sent me some as well. So I think with those two things, I'm about as prepared as I could be, right? I mean, you've already done it for like a year anyway. (laughs) And you filled in before. Yeah, and I think the thing that was great, even though, I mean, for the producers of the show, who are an amazing team, for 10 months they've had a rotation of all of us, which they get a different personality, a different vibe every week from folks. And so they've been rock stars um, working with all of us. But I think it's been fun that um, folks over on the broadcast network and on you know Fox News have gotten to see so many of our correspondents and different people and their strengths and their right. you know areas of expertise. So I think that's been kind of fun. Maybe so, not for the producers, but for the rest of us. Okay, so this week... Uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, a Democratic chairman, the DCC chairperson who wants to keep the House in Democratic hands and tells everyone with two ears that they will make it happen and be one of your featured guests. Uh, and also you have your panel, Howie Kurtz, Marie Harf, uh, Francesca Chambers, the USA Today, and Mark Short. How much pressure uh, is, are you getting from other panelists not to book me on your panel? First of all, Brian, none of that's true. I don't know where you got that from, but none of those people are on the show this weekend. Is that true? Uh, but I can't it's not true. Not. Oh, that's last weekend. No, it's not true. Oh, I was um, looking at the wrong yeah. promo. My, my fault. Right. So, so wait a second. Though. So I gave you an anti-promo. You did. You gave me, you went in a time machine. Right. We were going to last week's show. Then you have given the accurate promo for the time machine. Right. Um, so no, am I we, proving we, that I shouldn't be on the panel because I'm saying inaccurate things? 
Well, see, you're going to get yourself on probation. If that was going to be your hard sell to get on the panel, I think we're going to have to rethink this thing. So who um, is going to be on your real show? We've got two exclusives with Senator John Tester, Democrat, and Senator uh, Tim Scott, our Republican. Um, and they both have issues they really care about that they're fighting for, whether it's education in Scott's case and veterans' rights and veterans' care in Tester's case. But there are a whole lot of other things happening here in Washington about, like, how we're going to fund the government um, is, you know, calling half the country, um, you know, mega and deplorable, essentially. You know, is that working for, for the Democrats and for the party? We've got the midterms. We have so much to discuss with them. And we've got Andy Pettit on because we're going to be doing plenty of uh, memorializing of the Queen and of London. He's not involved with that. But we're also going to be talking 9-11. And so he's got some pretty unique viewpoints on that. You'll remember he was there when President Bush, 43, drew up that first pitch just weeks after 9-11. And kind of the idea that sports can be a real unifier across parties and politics. And um, the work that Andy is doing now as well with first responders and folks. So um, we're looking forward to having all three of those gentlemen with us on Sunday. Yeah, he's with Tunnel of the Towers. I was with Frank Siller yeah. a couple of nights ago. And he said, yeah, Andy Penner reached out and said, I just want to help. And, of course, he's mm-hmm. Andy Pettit, and if he was there uh, during his Yankee days. The closest thing in America, or at least in New York, to royalty is actually getting, uh, getting an official plaque tonight, Derek Jeter, uh, at mm-hmm. Yankee Stadium. So if you are going to ask him any question about Queen Elizabeth, don't be surprised if he starts bringing up a shortstop. <laughs> hey, listen, the Queen liked her sports, too. Maybe not American baseball, but um, she was pretty sporty herself. Right. So it's, uh, do you think we're going to be doing, uh, this is you, uh, just as Shannon Bream, the person, do you believe, and who's at works at Fox, do you believe we're going to be doing Queen all weekend? I think we're going to do a lot of Queen, but remember, this thing lasts 10 to 12 days. We're waiting for the exact dates for everything to happen, but, um, you know, there's no way to overstate her impact. 70 years of duty and of service. Um, you know, just think about the influence on 15 prime ministers and more than a dozen U.S. presidents she spent time with. And what an amazing ally she has been to us. And so you think about these bonds between the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, they run very deep. I'm still I'm looking now at Charles and it's so weird to think of him as King Charles. But um, it's like getting that new checkbook at the beginning of the New Year. Does anybody <laughs> use checkbooks anymore? I did. My I, sort of like, I actually never do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. Some <laughs> people don't. I still can You know, on the next year on your checkbook and getting all of your dates wrong. Kind of like that with King Charles. We're going to have to get used to it. But I think we'll, we'll have a lot of Queen coverage. We're going to have, you know, our Martha McCallum, who we love and celebrate, is over there. She is a royal expert. So she'll be part of our coverage on Sunday as well. And we have one more person that's related to the Queen. We have not locked in yet, but I think that'll happen soon. You mean somebody from the royal family? Um, I can. I can tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Um oh. Someone who will be an expert on everything that is happening. Okay. I have something. Okay. I have a real question for you. So okay. Harry evidently flew, was there doing charity events. So he flew over, but he was not with the family. He had to charter his own plane. We don't know how what a pain in the neck that is. We only have to charter our own plane. And flies <laughs> in. He spends only 12 hours on the ground. Doesn't seem to be with anyone all alone. Texting in a car. He took a. Do you think this is a bad time to? Is there ever ever a good time to leave the royal family? I mean, this guy it's, it's, since he came out, then he eviscerates the family, basically calls them racist uh, with Oprah, mm-hmm. and then he wants to come back. And obviously, even his own dad doesn't want to acknowledge him. That is a weird subplot, isn't it? Mm. I hope that's 
not true. You know what I mean? You would think that something like this would be very unifying. We know Harry was very close to his grandmother, but she was also very hurt from what we understand about what's transpired over the last couple of years. It makes me sad to think that he feels like he's sort of on an island. Um, They should all be grieving together. And hopefully um, in looking back at the Queen's call to service and to duty, we'll inspire all of them, hopefully, to let bygones be bygones. I got to think that would be one of her final wishes for them to make things work. Um, But, you know, I... Harry, Megan, there's a lot to discuss there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what their role is in the coming days. Oh, believe me, they're going to have no role, and that's going to be the story. Number two is they're going <laughs> to, I'm telling you, I'm telling everybody, the, the Harry's putting out this book, and you know it's going to eviscerate the royal family. But now, instead of people siding with him with originally, I think it's going to turn on him. I think mm-hmm. he might want to pull the book and give back the advance money. Um, um, ultimately, it'll be your decision. Yeah, I really don't think he will. I think Meghan has such an outside influence on what they're doing in their new life and this new path they've charted. And it seems for now he's convinced that um, with her leading the way that this is the right path. But it is so sad to see what appears to be an estrangement from his family. Um, And I don't think if it releases the book, that's going to get any better. Right. So, Shannon, you have a lot to discuss. I threw, tried to throw you by doing last week's promo. You would not fall for it. Luckily, that I knew you, who the you, guests were this you, you realize you're preparing for the wrong show or I had the wrong promo. <laughs> I'm like, so, wait a minute. <laughs> I've wasted the last couple of days. I never thought I'd ever heard that in my life. I don't think I've ever heard that, that it, none of those people are going to be on the show. So, <laughs> right. I, and I have to apologize. I apologize for all those people who like that show. But I think your show will be better than the one I promoted. I don't know. It was fantastic last week. Now we got a fresh <laughs> batch for this weekend. Um, what I'm still stuck on is the fact that you were talking about chartering jets. When we all know you have your own private jet, right? You're not even messing with the charter situation. Yeah, but every once in a while, when I got to rotate the tires, I have to rent a plane, and it's so annoying. Thanks so much, Shannon. Well, See I'm you. Happy to get into Economy Plus. Fox News Sunday's own Shannon Bream. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Every episode, exclusive interviews on demand. More of Kilmead coming up. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmead. So is he partly to blame here then? Is the federal government? President. Yes. The president, the White House, and anybody else who was involved in the National Guard not being granted for the district's humanitarian response. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. I'm coming to you right now from uh, the wonderful train station here where you can get an Amtrak train. Uh, beautiful, overlooking uh, overlooking all of Albany. You can really see the whole state capitol uh, here. Um, and last night we were over at the Egg. Having a great time out there. Everyone that came out last night, meeting all the listeners in person. Uh, it was fantastic. Had a chance to walk through history. Uh, I'll walk through the news. And coming up next, we're coming up on this weekend on 9-11, 21 years. It's also been 10 years since Benghazi. And when we come back, I'll look at really what went wrong. The investigation that really wasn't able to uncover uh, why we were so unprepared to defend that embassy. And what happened after we left? We've basically abandoned Libya, Gaddafi's dead, and now it's become a series of tribes and terrorists. And if anyone's got control, it's not America, it's Russia. How did President Obama and Vice President Biden get a pass on this? We'll talk about that with Ethan Shorn when we come back on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. What sparked the recent violence was the airing on the internet of a very hateful, very offensive video, a direct result of a heinous and offensive video sparked by this uh, hateful video. Yeah, that was Susan Rice. And really, she paid the price for those inaccurate statements. She is now a key advisor to President Biden, but she learned a lot from that incident. And that is not to be the public face of anything, but still make bad decisions. I would not be surprised when you write the story of the Biden administration that she was behind a lot of his ridiculous decisions, the worst of which was Afghanistan. Joining us now is Ethan Shoren. And Susan Rice, of course, was talking about uh, Benghazi, the attack in the embassy and the reasons for it. Uh, uh, Ethan is the CEO of Parent Associates and posted uh, to Libya with the U.S. State Department from 2004 to 2006 and author of the brand new book, Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and the world to the brink. Uh, Ethan, 10 years since the uh, attack, what do you, uh, why write this book now? What needs to be said and done? Uh, well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I wrote the book because basically I've felt for the last uh, 10 years that the focus on, on Benghazi has been on the 13 hours around the attack and all of these partisan uh, sort of arguing points when we really don't have the, the, the American public has never gotten the full context of the attack, as in where did this attack come from? Um, why was the scandal so uh, s- such a such a huge lengthy affair? And what were the what were the larger consequences of, of the attack? I, I argue, and the scandal. I, I argue that uh, the world we're facing today is in large part colored by uh, by, by Benghazi. In, in what respect? Because this is what they told us was the reason for the attack. Here's Hillary Clinton. Cut thirty. Some have sought to justify this vicious behavior along with the protest that took place at our embassy in Cairo yesterday as a response to inflammatory material posted on the Internet. Would you subscribe to that, that it was uh, something from the Internet? Well, see, here's where context comes in. I think the, uh, uh, the, again, the, the... all of the attention on Benghazi has been around, you know, what what various officials said at a given point in time, uh, and with reference to those 13 hours, um, and the longer term, uh, Benghazi didn't didn't just come out of nowhere. It basically it was a, a product of 9/11, and then the American response to, to 9/11 in many ways, and particularly the engagement uh, of the United States with Libya back in the early 2000s. Uh, we effectively. Uh, 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 made several different uh, rapid turnarounds in our relationships with uh, former Afghan mujahideen of Libyan origin, and wound up basically uh, trusting people we shouldn't have, and we got stabbed in the back, so to speak. So, if Ethan, if I remember correctly, uh, we got Gaddafi to give up his nukes, and we went in there and took him out, and we cut a deal with him basically to start trading with him and bring him into more uh, mainstream family of nations. Was that a mistake? I, I don't think that that necessarily was a mistake. I think the manner in which it was done was very uh, in, incautious, to say the, to say the least. We, uh, Benga- you know, uh, uh, Gaddafi did, had 
the the parts for nuclear weapons, but uh, what was going on there? He, he really he was quite far from a nuclear weapon. Um, he had a habit of buying up uh, br- broken materials, and and uh, you know he wanted to be able to claim that he was in the process of doing that. And the United States, after after the Iraq War, found uh, Gaddafi and the rapprochement uh, with him to be uh, useful in the sense that it provided this win on nuclear on nuclear non-proliferation. It provided contracts that weren't weren't uh, weren't materializing in Iraq, uh, and it uh, made a case for uh, democracy building uh, and positive impacts of the Iraq War on on other countries in the Middle East. But and, we made some. We and, and there's a. I, I, I take in this book. A, I'm not a partisan. I, I, I've made pains not. I to hear make you. This a partisan no, I hear thing. you. But just to follow up on what you just said, so you're saying in making this deal, we started. We we kind of went against our instincts and our knowledge about terrorists and Mujahideen is the fundamentals. They're fundamentally were Al Qaeda, and that we going into an agreement with Al Qaeda that had a presence in. Uh, Libya instead of just Gaddafi? Well, in order to reform Gaddafi, who was a, particularly on the face of an unreformable figure, I mean, he was responsible for, uh, he was involved in the Lockerbie attack and various other attacks on U.S. Person- personnel abroad. Um, uh, and in order to, to, to essentially make that deal uh, stick, we had to make, uh, we, we thought we, we, we would, uh, because Gaddafi had various enemies uh, with whom we were partially uh, at least supporting in previous years. Uh, and after, after 9-11, uh, essentially they became, uh, they became enemies. So we collaborated with Gaddafi to, to essentially interrogate uh, and, and torture them in order to get information out of them, but to prevent a future 9-11, presumably. And uh, somewhere along the way, we started to become somewhat uh, friendly with them, uh, as in these were people who were offering us information and could be re- rehabilitated. And I think that's where the, some of the, uh, the policymakers in Washington got lost track of the, of the bigger picture, that those kinds of arrangements rarely wind up uh, well. And if the Arab Spring had never happened, uh, Gaddafi would have been, you know, in place and presumably in control of these elements. Uh, but with the Arab Spring, all of a sudden, all bets were off, and uh, moderates and radicals were sort of mixed, and, and we didn't know who was who was who. Uh, and many of these people uh, presented themselves as friendly, and we, you know, wound up, you know, ultimately uh, hiring many of these people to protect the U.S. diplomatic mission in Benghazi. And if you, you really can't. You can't look for for uh, much more of a, of, uh, of a cause than than basic cause than that. Uh, I would uh, uh, fundamentally agree with that. It, it seems uh, folly. Uh, in the end, the Arab Spring was interesting because the Arab League was the one who was pushing us to act in Benghazi. That Gaddafi was going to go wipe out these rebels if we didn't do anything, and the Arab League kind of disappeared when we started supporting. Uh, military action or defending or shielding some of these rebels, if I remember correctly, correct? Well, I think one of the, the problems there was that, uh, you know, I think the intention in the intervention was, was a, a positive one. The problem, of course, was that there was no, no follow-through 
And, you know, of course, the Arab, Arab League and many of the Arab states, many people wanted to see Gaddafi gone. I mean, he, he had made lots of enemies over the years. So essentially, if the, if the United States is willing to go in and, uh, and take him out, essentially, that was seen as by many in Europe and, and, and the Arab world as a, as a positive thing. And the threat to Benghazi was real. I mean, there's no, no doubt in my mind. I've, I've interviewed scores of people. I know Benghazi quite well. I've you know spent a lot of time there. Uh, before, during, and after the attack, um, you know the, the perception on the ground was that uh, this, that Gaddafi was going to come in and and uh, knock some heads strongly. Put it that way. Um, and he so, ended up with a brutal death that uh, that almost every dictator says, uh, "I will make sure that that's not the way I die." Uh, from Vladimir right, Putin, who well, seems obsessed with that uh, as well. Correct. Yeah, sure. And, of course, the, the, the main problem with the way that we approached Libya was that we essentially repeated the mistake of Iraq. We created a political vacuum that we didn't fill. And if you leave it long enough, uh, other elements are going to come in and take advantage of it. And that, I think, was the, you know, that was, <laughs> that was one of the first, first, first series of, of at least foreign, foreign consequences of, of, the, of Benghazi. After the Benghazi attack, we left immediately libya uh and there were connections with uh, with syria as well we were essentially trying to figure out which groups of rebels were friendly and not friendly uh both in syria and in libya around the same time and there were connections between the two uh the benghazi committee tried to get at uh, some of, some of those connections but uh either failed to persevere in that effort or were somewhat stymied by the uh, by the obama administration what do you think of the trey gowdy's effort to investigate benghazi well, I think largely 80, 90 percent of it was, was uh, political. Um, uh, but I, as I've said in the book, I think that there were some uh, redeeming features of the, of the Benghazi committee. It brought a lot of witness uh, statements to, to light. And uh, there was some new information that came, that came out, of, out, out of that. Um, but I still think that the, the, the real story of, of where the Benghazi attack came from uh, and what, what actually happened in Benghazi during that day, and what, less what happened, but who was responsible. I mean, we've got two, uh, two individuals who were uh, brought back to the United States for trial and acquitted of most of the serious charges. We still don't have a clear sense of, of uh, at least publicly, of, what, of who was responsible. And I think, I think there are many elements in the U.S. government who do know. Um, but it's politically, it's, it's, it's a toxic topic politically. And Who's I think that's, again, one of the bigger problems of, yeah. of the whole Benghazi scandal was it allowed foreign policy concerns to be hijacked for uh, pol- domestic political ends, and we all suffer. And uh, there's more than enough blame to go around on, 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 on all sides. Ethan Chorin, our guest, uh, the, his book, Benghazi, A New History of the Fiasco that Pushed America and the World to the Brink. My last question, Ethan, is who has the most influence in Libya today? Well, uh, here's, here's the problem. We've got uh, several uh, external powers with whom we've, we've been allied in the past who are calling many of the shots, at least indirectly. We've got Russia, we've got Turkey, uh, um, and the United States is, is, uh, is somewhat ab- strikingly absent. This is a country that actually we could we could we could have, and we still potentially can have a great deal of influence on. It's got a small population, great wealth, and um, you know, unfortunately, after ten years of, of conflict, uh, its own political uh, uh, animosities have have, have mushroomed. Uh, it's frustrating uh, because 
there's bad policy and new policy, but no policy. There's no excuse for that. You have a whole State Department there that could be working and providing recommendations. Same thing with Iraq. We basically just handed over to Iran. We started gaining influence. The new Iraqi government was looking for the U.S. to help out uh, and to uh, at least be an ally, and we just aren't interested. And I just think that's inexcusable. Uh, thanks yeah, so I much. And, and, Go ahead. And I, I would say that, that my book has a lot of new information in it, uh, much of which will uh, will be enlightening to both uh, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, so, Gotcha. Uh, Ethan, thanks okay. so much. Uh, pick up Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. Thank you, Ethan. When we come back, I'll finish up with your calls. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. And don't forget, coming up Saturday at 8, repeated at 11, the uh, One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. I'll be the same guy, but I'll be looking a lot nicer because I got hair and makeup awaiting. Expanding your knowledge base. It's The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow. And God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. Pretty cool, right? Uh, All these years ago, Queen Elizabeth becomes Queen Elizabeth. Her dad dies and she ascends. And she's able to hold that throne for 70 years. And for the longest time, I remember being in junior high school and people talking about, well, she's just going to step aside for her son. No, it's King Charles now, but he had to wait a long time. He's kind of old. How old is he? He's like 70-something. So that is the big story. It's going to be everywhere. And we have not covered a lot of it because I know you get a lot of it everywhere you go. Plus, uh, we're in America. To put it in perspective, what she meant, she's always been there, uh, always had a positive thing to say about the country. That is not commonplace these days. Here's a little more from Queen Elizabeth, 1977. Uh, that's when she was uh, 21 at the Silver Jubilee uh, that you just heard. Here's her with uh, on the Princess Diana statement, 1997. People were talking about the, the royal family. People were just fed up because they really feel that she played a role in the ostracization of uh, Princess Diana, and she became more popular than the royal family. Here's her statement in September 1997 after her death. Cut 25. I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. All right. uh, That was the worst times uh, for everybody. Obviously, uh, Princess Diana, her family... And everybody else that blamed uh, blamed them for leaving them out. And, of course, she wrote the book talking about what the family was like. It looked pretty brutal. People have forgotten about that. And now Meghan Markle, I think on some level, tried to do the same thing to the family that Diana did. But she's not as popular. And her, her accusations were unfounded for the most part. They seem. 
and now it's going to make things worse. So I think she overplayed her hand, but Princess Diana, I think, was bigger than the royal family uh, because I think she got into Hollywood and kind of transcended things and ended up being this great person. Meanwhile, I'm just checking my watch. I think there's time to know more. More to know. All right, good news. We're making the dictionary thicker, and we all have thick dictionaries. Uh, we are adding to the Merriam-Webster's dictionary entries. Yeet? What does that mean? Sus? Does that mean to complain? Pumpkin spice? I know. Shrinkflation? Yeah, sadly. Uh, adorkable? That's like a... Aren't these... Uh, it's weird. Subvariant among new Merriam... Okay. Uh, let me see what undorkable means. A mashup of dorky and adorable. Yeet means used to express surprise, approval, or excitement. Have you ever, uh, Allison, heard anyone say yeet? She said no. All right, you're going to get a mic. We'll see. All right, next. Steve Jobs' daughter slams the new iPhone 14. This is interesting. It's the same version, she said. Eve Jobs shared her disapproval with a new iPhone. She says with her 343,000 followers on Instagram, other fans piled on and shared their thoughts on social media. How are the iPhone 14 and the iPhone 13 not the exact same thing, one user wrote? Let's remember, there is absolutely no reason the iPhone, the 13 Pro and Pro Max cannot get the new camera features on the iPhone 14. Same main sensor, same uh, SOC, etc. 9 to 5 Google contributor Max Weinberg tweeted that out. Eve, who, by the way, is 24 as a model and competitive horseback rider. So is that true? I mean, I'm not an expert, but is that what most users are saying? No, I mean, I know when they were advertising the new version, basically it's like small tweaks to the camera. It's right. not something you need to run out and get if you already have a 13. I mean, the thing is, there hasn't been, even though they're the most successful company on the planet, there hasn't been that new innovation. Maybe the watch, but is the watch revolutionary? The iPad was kind of revolutionary. People really thought that that was a change. I mean, I only, I only live on my iPad. You do live on your iPad. I well, it depends. Like some versions, like this 13 that I have now, the the f- camera is notice noticeably better than my previous one, like an 11. Right. But it just depends how much you really use the camera. I guess and so. Is that worth buying? But are you phone? buying a phone for the camera? Yeah. At this point, do you have young kids? I think it's got to be wearable. I think the next thing is the. That's the music. Wow, that really snuck up on me. <laughs> thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thanks to Paul Vandenberg for helping us out here in Albany. Uh, thanks for everyone who came out last night. Uh, and keep it here, the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't forget, Saturday night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.